this is your first time with us at Grace Covenant, I'd like to extend a special welcome to you. We're in the middle of a series on the book of Ephesians, and one thing we've been talking about every week, we're all going to remember this by the end, we're looking at Ephesians each week asking this question, what does this book, Ephesians, teach us about what it means to become a community, a community of grace, to become more a community of grace, to live in that more and more together? Um, and just to let you know, after this week, we're going to be taking a four-week break from the book of Ephesians. We're going to be doing a series of, um, centered around Advent as that starts next week, and then we'll pick up Ephesians again at the beginning of the year. Uh, our passage this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 16. That's on page 977 of your pew Bible. Now let's, uh, let's pray together as we turn to uh, God's Word. Let's pray. Father, this, this is your Word to us. We pray that by your Spirit you would open it up to us and open our hearts to your Word. Um, we are, many of us, are um, distracted and confused and beaten down. Um, coming off a holiday weekend, which for many of us was joyful and for many of us was sorrowful. Lord, wherever we are, we pray that you would meet us. You are our God. Speak to us through your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high... He led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together, by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Uh, now, two weeks ago when we were in Ephesians, we talked about verses 1 through 6. So we're going to be picking up with the rest of the chapter, or the rest of this section this morning. So remembering this week, um, when I was a kid, I had these distinct memories from the house that I grew up in of standing in, in the bathroom our bathroom, the kids' bathroom, at the mirror and looking at myself and thinking, I, I wonder what I'm going to look like when I get older, when I grow up. I wonder what I'm, I'm going to look like, what I'm going to be like when I'm in my 30s. 
now I look in the mirror and go, well, there you have it. Um, but but I, I, there was something I knew as a kid, and, and every kid knows this, that there's something in us that is looking ahead to the time when we grow up, when we become an adult, when we mature. Something about us that, that, longs, that longs for that when you're a kid. And that might be because you want to drive a car, because you want to, you know, pick what you eat for dinner every night, whatever. But there's something in us that wants to grow up. And this passage is about us growing up. It's about us becoming mature. It's about us becoming spiritually mature. And the point of the whole passage is, is simply this, that God wants his people to grow up. He wants his people to grow up. He wants us to become spiritually mature people. And then we're going to see in this passage three things about the spiritual maturity. First, we're going to see Jesus, the giver of gifts for our spiritual maturity. Jesus, the giver of gifts. We're going to see the, the gifts that Jesus gives for our spiritual maturity. And we're going to see the growth that defines spiritual maturity. Okay, so we're going to see the giver of gifts. We're going to see the gifts and we're going to talk about what does it mean to actually be spiritually mature. What does growth in Christ really look like? So first, let's take a look at this. Uh, this first part, Jesus, the giver of gifts for our spiritual maturity. And we're taking a look at verses 7 through 10 right here. And in this section, we see two things about Jesus. First, we're, first that Jesus is our victorious king. And secondly, that Jesus is our generous king. He's our victorious king and he's our generous king. Now, we immediately, as soon as we jump into this part of the passage, uh, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. And specifically, he's quoting Psalm 68, verse 18. Now, I remember for many years when I was on my own reading through the Bible, I would, um, I'd come to passages like this, especially where it quotes Psalms, and I'd just sort of skip over I'd skip over it uh, because it was confusing, right? Oh, there he's just quoting the Old Testament. And again, I'll skip on to the, I'll skip on to the rest of the argument. And then you get down into verse 9. It talks about ascending and descending. And maybe you're sort of scratching your head the same way uh, that I often did or, and often do as I first read through the New Testament, and it takes us back into the Old Testament. But for Paul, this verse that he's quoting in Psalm 68 is incredibly significant. He goes back here to say, this is actually telling us about Jesus, in Psalm 68, verse 18, and here's his quote of it in verse 8. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Psalm 68, verse 18. Now if you were to flip back in, in your Bible to the, um, to the Psalms and read that in Psalm 68, you'd find out that the context of that verse, it's talking about um, a cry for God to come and rescue his people and then in victory to ascend Mount Zion, the place where God's temple was, as the victorious reigning king. Okay, It's a passage about God in victory. And here Paul takes that verse and he applies it to Jesus. Interesting, isn't it? He says this verse in the Old Testament which talks about God, he says this is G Jesus actually is the one who most fully embodies what this verse is talking about. Now, one other technicality here. If you were reading through the Psalms and you were familiar with this passage, something would, would strike you about this because you'd say, well, when I look back in Psalm 68, verse 18, it says this, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he received gifts from men. Okay, Psalm 68, as we have it in our, in our Old Testament, says he received gifts. And here you've got Paul saying that he gave gifts to men. Okay, 
as you can imagine, uh, this is fruit for much scholarly <laughs> debate. But what's Paul doing? Okay, here, here are some of our options. He's misquoting the Old Testament, that he's doing this from memory. And the Old Testament really says that, that when God ascends in victory, he receives gifts. And Paul misremembers and he says that he gives gifts. Uh, another option is that Paul is just sort of playing fast and loose with the text, and he takes this verse from Psalm 68, and it mostly fits what he wants to say, and so he changes a word or two here and there in order to make it fit what he wants to say. Okay, that's another option. Third option, and you know the third option is always the one the person's like endorsing. The third option, <laughs> third option is that what Paul's doing is he's actually drawing out something that's implicit in that text. Okay, the picture of this reigning victorious king in Psalm 68, what happens when a king comes in in victory and delivers his people? What does he do? Well, he receives the spoils of war from those he's defeated. But then what does a good king do with that? He distributes it to his people. He gives it to his followers. What does a good king do? He takes the glory that's given him, the power, the riches that are given to him, and he shares it with his people. I think that's what Paul's latching on to here when he sees this picture of God rescuing his people. What does he say? He gives good gifts to his people. (laughs) Kind of makes you want to dance, doesn't it? But he texts this text, and what does he do? He applies it to Jesus. He says, that, he says that Jesus is now our victorious king. Jesus is the one who comes and gives good gifts to his people. Now, we get into this confusing part in verse 9. Paul says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Okay, what's he trying to say? He's saying this, when he looks back at Psalm 68 and he sees this victorious king ascending to the hill, what does Paul say? He says that victorious king who ascended is the same one who first came down, who descended, what does he say, to the lower parts of the earth? What's he saying? He's talking about the incarnation. He says this victorious king is the same one who came and lived among us, who humbled himself, who became human, who took on flesh, in order that he might take on our sin and free us. He says, that king who descended, who came here and became one of us, then what happened? In victory he rose again, and he ascended into heaven, and he gives good gifts to his people. Christ is our victorious king. And he's reminding us from the very beginning that as soon as we start talking about what does it mean to grow in maturity, he says, first you have to look back to your victorious king who won this victory for you, who brought life, who brought salvation, and who is giving good gifts to his people. He goes on to see that he's our generous king as well. Is that the way you view Jesus? You're not only victorious king, but you're generous king. The one who not only has gifts to give, but lavishes them on you. Or is Jesus holding out on you? When you look at your life, What's the lens by which you're seeing everything around you? By faith, seeing a good and victorious and generous king taking care of you in the middle of your struggles. 
or a king who's holding back on you. The scriptures present to us, and Paul holds up before us, this victorious, generous king lavishing gifts. Now let's take a look at the gifts that he gives us. Verse 11 and 12. If you're tracking with this passage, it, sort of, it creates a sense of expectation. Okay, if Jesus is really our victorious king, and if he's really our generous king, then what is it that he's going to give to us, his people? What are the gifts that he bestows on us? What's he going to bring out of these storehouses of riches for us, his beloved people? And frankly, we read the answer, and it's not necessarily what we were expecting. Uh, look at verses 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. What is this great gift that he gives us? Well, he lists these people, these roles in the church. Um, have you ever had one of those gifts at Christmas <clears throat> that you open it up, and at first you're not really sure what it is? And you're like, and the person who gave it to you is sitting right there, and you say, wow, thank you for this thing. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what it feels like a little bit, opening this gift, I think, at first. We're supposed to be thankful. What is it that, what is it that we're being given? A few weeks ago in the mail, we received this box that's addressed to our two children, both of whom are under the age of three. And so we open it up, and it's from a... Um, it's sent directly from the, the company that it's coming from, not via the person who's actually mailing it to us. And, and you open it up, and there was this bracket for attaching something to something else. And I thought, somebody has sent this <laughs> to my children, well-meaning, no doubt. Was I dug around in the paperwork, found out that it was actually from uh, our kids' grandparents, my parents, and then it was, they only shipped half the gift from the factory, the other half just still coming, and it was... Um, and it's a, a, a little, one of those little cameras that you attach to your computer. My kids are three years old and younger. <laughs> what are they going to do with a camera that you attach to your computer? Well, uh, we sort of scratched our heads. Here's what they're going to do with it. We, their parents, we're going to plug it into the computer. And my parents have one as well. And we're going to flip them on via the Internet. And my kids are going to be able to look into the computer screen and see and talk to their grandparents. They weren't giving us a bracket. <laughs> they weren't even giving us a camera. They were giving my children the gift of relationship. They were giving them themselves when they're 600 miles apart. And that's exactly what Paul is saying these gifts are in verse 11. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, what's he saying? He's saying, I'm giving certain people, certain roles, certain gifts to the church so that you might see me, so that you might know me better. He's revealing himself to us. He's a God who doesn't stay far off, who doesn't stay distant, but shows us himself. And he says this is the unique way in which he's going to do it. The apostles and the prophets he's referring to, if you, if you look back uh, earlier in Ephesians to chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. He says, uh, You're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He's referring to these gifts, these roles that were given to the, to the early church in Paul's time of revelation of who God is. Okay, now, those are, we don't have apostles and New Testament prophets the way they did. We don't have new revelation from God. But what do we have? We have what they have left us. We have God's revelation to us in Scripture. And that's what he used these people to give us. He said, I'm giving you these gifts, but it's a means by which I'm giving you myself. I'm giving you my word that you might know who I am. And he goes on and says, evangelists, those who are specifically gifted with uh, spreading the gospel, with showing people who don't know Jesus the glory of what it means to be in relationship with him. Now, on the one hand, all Christians are called to evangelize, even though that's sort of an ugly word in our culture. We are all called to share the hope that we have within us. We also know that God's gifted some people um, specifically and uniquely to do that. We know people through history do that. You think about uh, to a George Whitfield and the way God used him, to the Wesleys, to Billy Graham. Right There are people that we know that God has incredibly gifted them to bring the gospel to the world. That doesn't let the rest of us off the hook, but he does say that I've uniquely gifted many to really bring this out for the world to see. And then the last one he lists there, um, he says, uh, evangelists, the pastors and teachers, and we still have those, right? God's still given that to the church. Why? So that we might know Jesus. So that we might go back to this word that he's given us through the apostles, through the prophets, and together as a community, understand it better. See Jesus more clearly. Now, when he says pastors and teachers, there's grammatical debate about whether or not that's one role or two. Um, the way it's, it's, it's listed grammatically in the Greek, that's, that's probably a combined thing, pastor-teachers. Um, John Calvin didn't see it that way. He thought they were different roles. Um, John Stott tries to kind of walk the middle line, and he says that, um, he says that, all, that not all teachers are pastors, but all pastors should certainly be teachers. Either way, what's he doing? He's providing gifts within the body so that we might see Jesus more clearly. The roles of pastors and teachers is to bring out what God's given us in Scripture. Now, what is the, what is the end for which we have those? What's God trying to do with us and do in us? What am I, as your pastor, supposed to be doing? Well, it says in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. What's the role of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, opening up God's word that we might be equipped together for the work of ministry? See, immediately he starts talking about these gifts of seeing God in his scriptures. And he says it's for the good of all of us so that together, as a body, we would be a people together who are equipped for ministry. Who does ministry in this church? We do. Now that's both comforting and discomforting. It's comforting because God includes all his people. He uses us together. It's uncomfortable because a lot of times that's not really the way we want it. We, have, we hire a pastor to do that. We have elders who do things like that. Those poor people that get called into leading home fellowship groups, they're the people that do the work of ministry. Um, you know, the, the deacons and all their hard work around the church. Okay, those are specific roles, sure, but what is, what is he telling us? 
The point of all of what we do in bringing God's word to bear in our lives is that we together might be equipped for the work of ministry, that he calls us all into that together. John Stott says this, he says that pastors teaching and training are directed to this end, to enable the people of God to be a servant people, ministering actively but humbly according to their gifts in a world of alienation and pain. How are we doing? How are we doing together as a body, ministering the gospel to each other and to the world around us? That we might be a body that's built up, as he goes on to say. How are we doing being that for Williamsburg? Again, what does it mean? What does Ephesians say to us about becoming a community of grace? A community of grace is going to be a community, our church, that's made up of people who are equipped to minister who have their eyes open for the needs of those around them and looking for ways to bring the love of Jesus to the people around them, in word, in deed, wherever it's needed. So we see in this passage, we, we've seen that, that uh, we've taken a look at the giver of these gifts for spiritual maturity and the gifts that he actually gives us. Let's take a look at the growth that should define our spiritual maturity. This is verses 12 through 16. We said already that God wants us to grow up and to be spiritually mature, and that's why Jesus gives us himself. That's why he reveals himself to us in his word. That's why he's equipping our church to know him better, that we might together grow into maturity. Uh, It says in verse end of 12 and 13, for building up the body of Christ till we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Okay, he goes on to give us this image of maturity. He talks about a mature man, a full-grown man. Okay, two things to say about that. Why not men? That we might be full-grown men. Certainly, the Bible uh, lays before us a picture of individual growth. Does Paul want us, does Jesus want us to grow individually as believers? Absolutely. But what's Paul got in view here? The body, us together. And this is the part that Americans forget. It's about us as a body together, that we are a community, that Jesus brings us into his church, his people, that we might do this together, that we can't survive alone, that we actually need each other. And so he says, this full-grown man, that we together, the body of Christ, would be this full-grown man. Second thing, uh, why, why man and why not adult? Or why not man, men and women? Does Paul discount women? That's not what's going on here. But it fits with the image, because what does he say? I want you to become a full-grown man so that you would be like what man? He's immediately pointing us back to Jesus. In the second half of verse 13, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He says, what man are we to be like? The man Jesus Christ. And maybe growing up, some of you all had posters of people in your rooms growing up, people you admired, people that you wanted to be like. I had friends that had, maybe some of you will remember this poster, who had this great Michael Jordan poster. And it was a to-scale picture of, of the upper half of him with his arms stretched out, all six foot six or whatever it is, of Michael Jordan on their wall. Now... If you've ever seen me play basketball, you know that I did not turn into Michael Jordan. In fact, 
none of my friends who owned that poster ultimately attained Michael Jordan hood, basketball fame. Think about the people that were hanging in your wall as you were growing up. Did, you, did we really become like them? For me and my friends, if we wanted to be like Michael Jordan on the wall, what was that going to take? Well, not just staring at the poster, certainly not just owning it, but going out on the basketball court day in, day out, playing hard all the time, and having natural God-given gifts that none of us had to begin with. But you only become something like that by hard work. Now, look at what he says to us about Jesus, though. He says that we're to attain to the full stature of Jesus himself. That at the end of the day, that we would look like him. Now, how are we going to look like him? There's another passage Paul may well have had in mind um, from uh, the book of 2 Corinthians where Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, We all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And in the context, he's, he's using this example talking about Moses, who used to gaze upon God, and he had to cover his face because he was so radiant from that. And what's he saying here? That we're all being transformed by gazing at Jesus by being in his presence, by looking at him. Now, my friends and I, we could have sat all day in the presence of the Michael Jordan poster and never become Michael Jordan. But what, is, what does Paul tell us? He says, we are upholding for you Jesus, our resurrected king. And it's by looking at him that we're transformed. Not simply by our effort, not by our own attempts at moral reformation, but by looking at our Savior. Now, if that's really true, that brings a whole new weight to these gifts that God has given. If those gifts are really like that little camera on the computer, if it's really so that we might see him more clearly, then that brings all this into focus. What's it going to mean for us to grow in maturity? What's it going to mean for us to look more and more like Jesus? What's it going to mean for us be more transformed into his image. We have to spend time in his presence. We have to spend time looking at him and looking to him and being changed by him. And that ought to be our expectation every time for you and for me during the week when we open up our Bible and read it and pray. That ought to be our expectation every time we come together here on Sunday morning and do what we're doing right now, looking at Scripture together, that in it we would see the beauty of Jesus and that that would transform us. This is his goal for us, the body of Christ, the church together, that we would reflect Jesus, that we would look like our King, that we would be mature, that we would mirror him goes on in verse 14, the next couple verses, to contrast this with being children that are tossed about by waves and cunning and deceitfulness. Okay, the word here for children is the word that would have roughly been a toddler. Have you ever seen toddlers trying to walk around? It's an unsteady business. And he says, 
He wants you to grow up. God wants you to grow up so that you won't be like that toddler, blown by everything that comes your way, but that you would be mature, that you would be grounded, that you would know Jesus, that when false teaching comes your way, when things that come and just entrap our hearts come our way, that we'd be able to see our way through it as full-grown adults. This is one of the great ironies of our spiritual life, that you can be 80 years old and a spiritual toddler. All you have to do to grow up physically is keep eating. Stay out of too much trouble. What happens? Your body grows up. Paul's exhorting us because he knows that spiritual maturity doesn't happen that way. That we could, in fact, spend our entire lives as spiritual toddlers. And he says, don't do that. If you remember this commercial, it was, um, it was magic to my ears when I'd hear it as a kid. The whole Toys R Us thing about, you know, I don't want to grow up, I'm a, I'm a Toys R Us kid. <laughs> For some of us, I think we're essentially living that way. I don't want to grow up. I'm a spiritual kid. I don't want to really be transformed like that. I don't want to really be changed like that. Paul says that's what God calls us to, and that there's, there's a steadiness in spiritual maturity. We might be wise, that we might be steady. He contrasts this with being blown about by every false teaching. He says, instead, we're to be people who are speaking the truth in love. Now, in context, Paul is not saying we should always tell the truth. Certainly, he believes that's true. But he's what he's doing, he's, he's contrasting what he's just said about all this false teaching, about being blown aside. What's he saying? That we together would be a people who confess the truth, who speak the truth about who God is and what this world is all about, and that we live that together, that we speak the truth in love, that we would be a mature people grounded in love. And then he says something remarkable. You get down to the end. He talks about us growing up into the head that's Christ the one who rules over us, the one who nurtures us. He says that we might be mature in him. And then he kind of spins the dynamic at the very end. He says that we would, uh, that the very last part of verse 16, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Christ is the one who makes us grow. But he's saying a body that works right, that he uses the body itself to make us grow. But there's only one food for us, and it's Jesus. If we're going to grow up and continue to grow up and be a people who are maturing together, speaking the truth and love together, then we're going to have to be a people who are speaking and showing Jesus together all the time that we might be mature. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would continue doing that good work in us that we sometimes resist growing up, that you would make us mature, that we might know you better, that we might know that growing up means joy and fullness and a deeper walk with you. We pray that you would be the one who is always on our lips, that you would be the one who is always um, fueling our actions, our desires, our motivations together. May we together be a community growing up to reflect the full-grown man, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would warm our heart by your love, that we might grow up. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand together and continue worshiping uh, by singing the hymn on Jordan's stormy banks. I